Chapter 9 of Captain John Crane by Thomas Wallace Knox. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Hirsch. Chapter 9 Trouble Between the United States and Algiers. The first time our government ran against Algerine pirates, said Haynes, was in 1785, when they captured two vessels from the United States and sold their crews, 21 men altogether, into slavery. The president set about getting these men released just as soon as he heard of the capture of the ships. The diplomatic agents of the United States and Europe were instructed to make arrangements in that direction but the day of Algiers believed that he had found a new mine of wealth and demanded an enormous price for the ransom of the unhappy sailors. "'Did our government pay it?' I asked as Haynes paused. "'No, they did not,' was the reply. They determined that they would not establish a precedent for such exorbitant demands. In France, there was a religious society called the Maturin that was established hundreds of years ago for the purpose of releasing Christian captives who were held by the infidels. Our government employed the chief of the Maturin to negotiate the liberation of our men, but he didn't succeed. Several other attempts were made, but the day refused to come down in his price because he thought the Americans would pay anything rather than let their citizens be slaves, or at any rate their white citizens, as we had plenty of negro slaves in our country and thought that kind of slavery was all right. Well, the thing dragged along a good while. Our government appropriated $40,000 to ransom those men. One after another, two commissioners were appointed to negotiate the business, but each of them died before he got to Algiers. Before the negotiations for these twenty-one men were concluded, ten more American ships had been captured, and more than a hundred sailors sold from them into slavery. It was not until 1795 that we brought the miserable business to an end, and got the release of the prisoners by paying $800,000 in cash, with a promise of an annual tribute of $25,000, and a ship of war worth $100,000. Do you mean that we were to give them a ship of war every year? I asked. Oh, no, replied Haynes. Not a ship of war every year, but a single one as soon as we could build her after giving the $800,000 down. Oh, I understand, I answered. Why didn't we take that $800,000 and build ships of war with it, and then go and blow the Algerine sky high? That's what we ought to have done, said Haynes, and it's a big shame we didn't do it. What we did every other nation of Europe had been doing, and some of them for hundreds of years. It is like paying a chicken thief five dollars a month to let alone robbing your hen roost. Well, if we've been paying twenty-five thousand dollars a year to the day of Algiers to let us alone, how is it that he is capturing our ships now? We were not very prompt in making our payments, I believe, Haynes answered. 
And besides, them pagans don't pay any attention to their treaties. They make an agreement that is to last five or ten years and get a certain amount of money. But when they've used the money up and want more, they go to capturing our ships again and simply tell us that they are out of money and must raise it somehow. I'm getting off the track a little, said Haynes after a pause, as I promised to tell you how we owe our present navy to the Algerine pirates. The capture of our ships was a very bad blow to American commerce, as it drove the American flag out of the Mediterranean and limited our trade altogether to the West Indies. Matters had come to a very bad state. Mr. Humphreys was appointed commissioner for the United States in 1793 to negotiate with the Day of Algiers. He was treated with great contempt by that chief of pirates, and what do you suppose the beggar said when he talked with the American about the business? I don't know, I'm sure, was the reply of all of us. Well, he said... If I were to make peace with everybody, what should I do with my corsairs? They would take off my head for the want of other prizes, not being able to live on their miserable allowance. Mr. Humphreys did not waste any time in writing to President Washington and telling him what the barbarian scoundrel said, and he added this comment at the end of his letter. If we mean to have a commerce... We must have a navy to defend it. Well, the president in his next message to Congress suggested that we must have a navy, and he gave his reasons for the suggestion. I disremember them exactly, but the substance of them was that the United States would never have any rank among nations if she had the reputation of weakness. We would be sure to be insulted if we hadn't the strength to hit back, and the only way we could have peace was to let everybody know we were always ready to fight. Congress took the words of the President in good part, Haynes continued, and passed a bill authorizing the building of six frigates, four of them forty-four gunners, and the two thirty-six gunners. And that's the way we owe our navy to the Algerine pirates. Would you believe it, there were a good many members of Congress who opposed building the navy and thought it would be better and cheaper to make a trade with the Day of Algiers by paying him ransom and tribute money instead of spending our money on ships. They made a clause in the bill appropriating a million dollars toward buying a piece with the day, and in case they did so, the building of the ships was to be stopped. And that's just what happened. In 1795, we made a treaty of peace with this sea robber, which cost the government a million of dollars, as I've already told you about. They stopped work on the ships, but they were pretty well along by that time, and when, in 1797, we got into trouble with France and things looked very squally, it didn't take a great while to finish the ships and get them ready for sea. How did the trouble with France come about? Please, tell me. 
As near as I can remember, said Haynes, this was the way of it. France and England were at war, and the French government took offense at a treaty we had made with Great Britain. They issued a secret order authorizing French ships of war to capture neutral ships in the West Indies if they were found carrying supplies to British ports. The French cruisers, under this authority, began to seize American ships and treated their crews with great cruelty. We had felt very friendly to the French down to that time, owing to the way they helped us during the Revolution, but they acted so badly that we didn't feel so well afterwards. Next they issued a decree which almost amounted to a declaration of war, and I don't believe you can guess what it was. I've read somewhere, I said, that the French not only authorized the capture of American ships trading between the United States and Great Britain and its colonies, but declared further that any American found on board of a hostile ship, though placed there without his consent by impressment, should be hanged as a pirate. Wasn't that it? Yes, it was, said Haynes. Just think of it. British ships were constantly impressing American seamen. Suppose an English warship with impressed Americans on board should be captured by a French cruiser. Those Americans were liable to be hanged as pirates. Did you ever hear of anything so outrageous? Certainly, I never did, I answered. It's difficult to believe that such an order was possible. Did the United States declare war against France after that? They didn't do it in the regular form of a declaration, said Haynes, but they sent out warships as fast as they could get them ready, with orders to capture French ships, and at the same time they passed a law for raising a land force to defend our seaports. A good many French privateers were fitted out to capture American ships, and American privateers to capture French ships. As fast as we could get our warships ready, they sent them out, and the fighting very soon became lively. The frigates United States, Constitution, and Constellation were the first to go to sea and the Constellation captured a French cruiser a few days after she sailed. She was the first vessel captured in the war, and in fact the first ever captured by the Navy of the United States. There's a funny thing about that cruiser, continued Haynes, and I listened attentively to hear what he was saying. She was called Le Croyable. That's what I think it was, and carried fourteen guns. She was taken into port where she was condemned by a prize court and added to the United States Navy. They named her the Retaliation, and sent her out with two other small ships to cruise in the West Indies. One day they sighted two ships that they thought were British, and sailed up within shooting distance. They discovered their mistake when it was too late. What they had thought to be English ships turned out to be Frenchmen, 
and big ones, too. The French ships captured the retaliation, and the other two started to sail away. One of the big French ships started after them, and she was one of the fastest sailors in the world. Captain Bainbridge of the retaliation had been taken on board the other French ship as a prisoner. When he got there, the French captain asked him the strength of the two ships that were running away. He promptly answered, twenty-eight twelve-pounders and twenty-nine-pounders which was more than double what their armament really was. The French captain immediately signaled to the other Frenchmen to give up the chase and come back. As the one who signaled was the senior officer, the other one was obliged to obey his orders, which he did very reluctantly, as he had got near enough to the American ships to see that they were very much inferior to him, and he was pretty certain to capture them. Didn't they punish Captain Bainbridge for telling such a falsehood? I asked. No, not at all, said Haynes. You know the old saying, all's fair in love and war. They used a few hard words about him, and then the French captain complimented him on the success of his deception, and asked him to take a glass of wine. The trick was by no means a new one, either on sea or on land. There was another hard-fought battle in February 1800, continued Haynes, between Commodore Truxton's ship, the Constellation, 38 guns, and a French ship called the Vengeance, of 52 guns. It began at eight o'clock in the evening and lasted till one in the morning. The ships sailed along side by side all that time and kept firing broadsides into each other. The rigging of the Constellation was so cut away that her mainmast fell overboard, and just before that happened the French ship sheared off and disappeared in the darkness. The Constellation had fourteen men killed and twenty-five wounded, while the Vengeance had fifty killed and one hundred and ten wounded. Her captain said that he had lowered his flag twice during the engagement, endeavoring to surrender, but the American hadn't discovered it. Haynes further told me that from the beginning to the end of the war, about fifty ships, large and small, were captured by American privateers. The frigates and other warships made a good many captures, and on the other hand the French ships took a considerable number of American craft. Just as he told me this, there was a commotion outside of the room where we were, and the same officer whom I have mentioned as wearing so much uniform appeared at our door, accompanying the keeper of the jail. The keeper unlocked the door and opened it, and then we were called into the corridor of our prison. The officer questioned us as to whether we belonged to the crew of the Washington, and we promptly answered that we did. "'You'd better go back to your ship at once,' said he, "'and if you come ashore again, try to behave yourselves.' If you get into trouble here a second time, you may not get off so easily. 
That's all. You can go now. We didn't stop to thank him, and in fact, we could hardly have done so had we thought of it, as he turned on his heel and walked away the instant he pronounced the last word of his little speech that I have quoted. We were only too willing to go back to the ship, and hurried to the landing place as fast as we could go. We gave a boatman a shilling to take us to the Washington, and you can believe we scrambled up the side in a hurry. We reported to the mate, who was on duty at the time, and he gave us a sharp ratting for overstaying our liberty on shore. I endeavored to explain matters, that our liberty had been mostly passed in jail, at which he smiled and ordered us to go below. Captain Dawson was ashore at the time we got back, and didn't return for several hours. Soon after he came back, he sent for Haynes to come aft and tell the story of our experience. None of the rest of us were sent for, and we were somewhat solicitous as to the treatment Haynes would receive. The captain heard his story, and when Haynes explained that we had been set upon and provoked by the English sailors with whom we got into the fight, and also that we had done our full share of the knocking down before we were arrested, the captain appeared quite satisfied, and did not make any reproof of us for overstaying our liberty. He did say, however, that he thought it would be well for us to heed the advice of the British officer, and not go on shore again. Then he told Haines to go forward, and we heard nothing more about the matter. We remained four or five days at Gibraltar, taking in water and fresh provisions, repairing a few damages resulting from the gale I have told about, and also disposing of a part of our cargo to good advantage. There were no docks where we could lie, and our cargo was unloaded into lighters which came alongside. Two or three times we got into wordy altercations with the lighter men, and if order hadn't been maintained by the captains of the lighters and our own officers, I think we might have indulged in some hand-to-hand fighting. The men on the lighters were mostly English, and as we were all Americans you can readily understand that it would have been quite easy to provoke a fight. After all of our arrangements had been completed, I supposed we would sail away at once. But, to the surprise of all the crew, we continued to lie at our anchorage. The captain didn't choose to tell us why we were delaying, and, of course, we couldn't ask him. We lay there the next day, and the next, and then the reason for our delay became apparent. An English cruiser got up sail and proceeded out of the harbor. When she began operations for leaving port, we followed her example and left our anchorage not many minutes after she had left hers. As she reached the end of the peninsula, she turned to the eastward, and we followed her example. It then became plain to all of us that we were sailing in her company, 
and she would protect us from any further attack by the Algerines. England was then at peace with Algiers, having made a truce with the day, the real object being to concentrate the attacks of the pirates upon the French, and also to break up American commerce in the Mediterranean. The day had ordered his people not to plunder any ship bearing the English flag, I've no doubt it caused them many a pang in their hearts to see a large and apparently valuable ship sailing by, and they, forbidden by the orders of their ruler, to capture it. We were headed for Marseille, and for a considerable part of the way the coast of Spain and southern France was in sight. We saw two or three corsairs from the Barbary coast, Whenever they were sighted, the British warship slackened her speed so that we easily closed in upon her and were literally under her protection. The maritime force of Algiers at that time consisted of four frigates with an aggregate of 124 guns, one polacca with 18 guns, one brig of 20, four zebgas with an aggregate of 168 guns, three galeatas or galliots, with four guns each, and six gunboats. The vessels were all manned at the rate of 12 men for each gun. Tunis had at the same time 22 corsairs, mounting from four to 22 guns each. So you see, those Barbary Coast pirates had a large fleet of ships, and bear in mind, I've not included the fleets of Morocco and Tripoli, which were equal to about half of the combined force of Algiers and Tunis. I ought to explain, perhaps, that a palaka is a vessel with three short masts, without tops, caps, or cross-trees to the upper yards. A zebka is a small three-masted vessel used in the Mediterranean, and a galeata is a vessel with one mast and has from sixteen to twenty seats for rowers. This sort of vessel is very useful for piratical purposes, as it can be propelled at a fair speed by means of oars when the weather is calm which is impossible with a ship of the ordinary build of England or the United States. As the piratical craft always carries plenty of men, they can use the oars to great advantage. We got to Marseille without trouble, though our convoy left us when we were just within sight of land. It was fortunate that we did not encounter a French fleet while on the way from Gibraltar to Marseille else we might have lost our convoy and been left to take care of ourselves. Ordinarily, when either the French or the English ships ventured out of port at that time, they went in fleets of considerable size, for the double purpose of offense and defense. Several ships together could make themselves reasonably sure of capturing any straggling vessel of the enemy, and in case of attack by an enemy's fleet, they might possibly cut some of the ships off singly, even though the enemy's fleet was stronger than their own number. 
I presume it was in order to avoid drawing an attack from the French that our British convoy turned away at the time he did. Moreover, there was little chance that the Algerine corsairs would venture very near the French coast for fear of capture, and therefore we were fairly safe. We sold our cargo to good advantage at Marseilles, and very quickly obtained a return one. As soon as we could make ready after our cargo was completed, we hauled out of Marseilles and headed for the Straits of Gibraltar. End of chapter 9 Recording by Tom Hirsch